Hi, everyone. Welcome to the water cooler. Yeah, thanks for coming. So, yeah, the way, that, the way that this works is that, like, I have come up with the theme Pride and Humiliation, which I think is quite a cool theme. And uh, these are your storytellers. And I will, like, introduce them later. And so normally what I'll do is, like, I'd stand up here and I'd try to be, like, funny and I'd just say a bunch of shit. Um, but actually this time I decided I was going to read something out that I wrote because I did a podcast for Amon, Behind Me in the Stripes. And it's called um, the it's called the What We Talk About podcast, and we had to talk about what we were passionate about. And I was passionate about extremely elaborate ideas and um, making things happen at that story. So I wrote this whole thing. I'm just going to read it because it it relates to pride and humiliation. I came up with it. So it's going to start off on like a reasonably serious esque tone. Okay, so this is new for me. <laughs> right. Okay. So I've written this thing. It's just a thing. Hmm. Um, so yeah basically this is how I came up with the theme Pride and Humiliation I'm just going to read like a bit of it because it like when I did this live it was 20 minutes long it was supposed to be 7 <laughs> um, okay so you know how people often say things like don't be afraid of failure or uh, f- fear of failure will sort of be the end of you it'll stop you from starting anything um, I don't think that's what people are afraid of at all I don't think people are actually afraid of failure because you can fail and nothing really that bad will ever happen. Like you can start a business and set up a you know crazy bank account with like a lot of lawyers and a lot of safety nets, so that when your crystals um, company crumbles to the ground, like nothing that bad will happen from failing. It's fine. You've got kind of or you might owe a couple of bills, but you can get away with it. But still, this fear of failure is so crippling to so many people. Just the thought of failing whatever they attempt just stops them from even trying it but I don't think it's failure that is actually making them stop I think what people are afraid of is humiliation not actually failure itself people um all of us we're we're quite proud of ourselves I think and we don't want to have to dust a chunk of pavement off our bleeding knees in front of a crowd of disappointed onlookers after we fall down it hurts that feeling of fucking up it hurts when you were 10 years old you had this whole idea of how awesome you were going to be when you grew up so the humiliation that a lot of adults feel when they fail, I think is based off remembering your 10-year-old self and thinking about how you've let them down. The weight of disappointment and the weight of disappointing yourself just cuts into your throat as soon as it happens. It's like a sharp knife followed by a very heavy wrecking ball. I think pride comes from memory. So the minute that your pride is knocked, you just sort of remember a split second before that and just feel like shit because you took that for granted, that feeling just humming along in your life. You just took that for granted and now you've fucked up and it's just so upsetting that you took it for granted. Um, When your pride gets knocked, you feel humiliated and embarrassed. I think sort of that fear of humiliation is a bit of like a disease. You know, it's like a leftover animal instinct that's pretty useless in most modern situations. Like if you think of the bigger picture, uh, it does make sense to sort of fear humiliation to a certain extent, but not in the way that we, we do. And so many things we won't do. Like you won't wear a backwards cap out of the house because like it might be a bit shame. But I just don't care. (laughs) Um, I sometimes think about who it was that came up with a cure for cancer and what went through their head when they decided not to bother. It was probably fear, like fear of humiliation. But we still have cancer now, so they failed anyway. I used to be constantly terrified of letting myself down. I was in so much denial. This is just a short while ago. I was chained to a customer service headset at an insurance company. I was not using a creative style in my whole brain. I didn't even realise that by trying not to fail and by trying not to humiliate myself, I had failed and I was humiliating myself in my fucking shit job every single day. 
My friend Emily gave me some words of wisdom one night at a bar, and I can't remember what they were. <laughs> it, like, it wasn't a catchy sentence, and I was definitely drunk, but she just knows me very, very well, and whatever she said, it just hit home. And I became a stand-up comedian pretty much the next day. I just flipped everything. I decided I didn't give a shit if I was humiliated or not. Come at me, world, humiliate me. I don't give a shit. I'm, it, it works. Like, I'm nearly 27, and my whole world is busy and exciting and growing, and I don't welcome death yet. However, like just when I was 24 years old, I basically had anything that I am doing now written off as ever being a possibility. I'd given up. I didn't think I would actually do the thing that I had in the back of my head my entire life. You know that thing that everybody has in the back of their head and you just ignore it and hope that it will go away so that you don't have to do it because it's this thing called your one true passion and it's frustrating because there's no way to make any money off that and you'd just rather be a fucking accountant. So if you just keep going to school and stop thinking about poetry, eventually the passion for maths will kick in. <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> it fucking doesn't. And you just grow up secretly wanting to be a poet for the rest of your life and then you never do it until eventually your whole world crumbles around you and you end up an alcoholic and the best poet you've ever been but it's too late, you're 70 and your heart's fucked. <laughs> um... I don't know how much more time I have to keep going. It's a really cool podcast and you should listen to it so I don't want to ruin the whole thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I basically just kind of went on to explain some after I realised that I wasn't afraid of humiliation anymore. And I'm not. It's really cool. It's really sweet. Because I, I just do all this shit now. Like I, I just don't get scared if I'm going to fuck something up. So I produced this show and the Auckland one and it got cut from the wireless and it's, I fly up to Auckland and I don't have any money and I just spend it all kind of making it up as I go along and don't, don't really mind if it doesn't work. And I made this event called The Big Dog Walk with Lots of Dogs. Yeah, it's on... Have you seen that? It's like, fuck, it got so out of hand. Like, I made it and I was like, that'd be the coolest thing ever. And then, yeah, all of a sudden there was just like 20,000 people synchronised global dog walking there's one in Harajuku Japan like what am I doing but I was like yeah man cool let's just do it that's going to be a bloody nightmare people (laughs) people could die there's so many there's going to be so many leads and they're all going to get so tangled (laughs) and it's so dangerous and I don't give a shit. I mean, I do, like, I don't want people to die and stuff, but, like, when I'm on the news explaining just everything that went wrong and what I would have done differently, like, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be red-faced. I'm just going to be like, man, I did, you should, I've got this podcast coming out. <laughs> Check it. So, yeah, that's, after, that's kind of why I've come up with this. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm like a Billy T nominee, and I have to sort of stand there at one point. I have to, I have to, do, I have to be at the Sky Tower, and they bring all of you out. And then they announce who won it in front of like 700 people. And it's just a fucking shitstorm. And that's going to be a bloody awful mess. What the hell? I don't want to do that at all. But I got to stand there and just wait for them to announce some other person and just be like. And then answer like, oh, did you get it? Did you get it? No, 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 no. It's cool. I'm fine with that. Like I have just really good experience. Really enjoyed the journey. Like, fuck. (laughs) Anyway, so that's kind of how we started this. I think I've gone on for way too long. I'm going to get in so much fucking trouble. Oh, my God. Okay. Can I please get you all to put your hands together for Amon Mara? Um, I've titled my piece, All My Mistakes Are Public. Is uh, a quote that a writer, Andrew O'Hagan, said last week in Writer's Week, and I'm like, you have described my life. 
Uh, okay. Self-recognition happens at around two years old. It's indicated by being able to look in a mirror and understanding that the thing on the other side of the mirror is you. And that's kind of when you realize that this ball of feelings and responding to like stimuli is actually a physical thing in this world in, in your body. Uh, I can pinpoint the date that this happened to me. It was June 10th, 2009, and I was 19 years old. And it was the date that I started my first blog. I had just been put on antidepressants, so it was called Life on Fluoxetine. <laughs> I'm going to read the, the, the beginning of the very first post on this blog. Today was pretty shit. <laughs> Nothing especially bad happened, but it was just a shit day. I got up, took a pill, went back to bed, watched The Simpsons, ate some curry, slept some more, ate some chips, listened to some music, played some Tetris, spent too much time on Facebook, and now I'm sitting writing a pretty shit blog and watching a real shit TV program. This is pretty much my typical day. I don't really leave the house, and I don't have, I don't have to ever leave the house. I should really do more with my life, and I'm definitely not content with my life at the moment, but I do not have the motivation, slash I do not actually care enough about my life to do anything about it. And since that moment, I've kind of lived a public life, not in the way that I'm like famous or anything, but by Googling me, you can find out a lot about me. Um, since then, I've consistently blogged, written poetry, reviewed music, hosted radio shows, tweeted, and done, and now I do comedy. Uh, before this date, I kind of, I lived and I had friends, but I don't think I ever realized that I had a self. And by writing and blogging and tweeting, I've constructed a self. I've kind of built this image, this mirror image that I can see myself as. Um, so early on, I decided that I really wanted my online presence to be as accurate a representation of self on the internet as it could possibly ever be. And this was like incredibly important to me because I had this idea that if I constantly wrote about myself on the internet, uh, and I was like really true to myself when I did this, that in the future it would be possible to create an artificial intelligence based on my writing and I'd be able to live forever. <laughs> and so this, this process of blogging was essentially me uploading my consciousness to the cloud. And um, I, I, I legitimately thought this, and I've kind of realized that was probably a manic episode, but I... Uh, <laughs> have not got diagnosed. <laughs> um, and people have always called my writing really brave, which has been a term I'm like conflicted about. And it's often because I wrote, I've written a lot about my mental health. Um, but in reality, I'm not doing it because I'm brave. I'm doing it out of fear of dying or like not even being a real person when I'm alive. And a lot of the time it's only honest because I write about it. And by writing about it, it creates this, this image because like, I didn't realize that I had anxiety until I started writing about anxiety. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what all these feelings are. Um, but a problem that I've had with this public life is that a lot of what I've done has been terrible. Like, so terrible. For example, when I was 19, I started writing poetry. Like, really terrible poetry. And not terrible poetry as in it was, like, cheesy and it had an A, B, A, B rhyme structure. It was terrible that it, it was so terrible, it wasn't even really poetry. It was basically me being, me being like, ah, feelings, and then adding some line breaks to it and calling it free verse. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Uh, I'm going to read a poem that I published on my blog on the 21st of February, 2010. And I'm going to struggle to read this. Uh, okay, I'm just going to do it. In the middle of the party, I often stop and think, what would my mother think of my seduction technique? <laughs> but, but I don't even get to stick it in, so she probably wouldn't care. In the middle of conversation, I often stop and think, what would my mother think if I took this girl to meet the family? But I would probably get to stick it in, so I probably wouldn't care. And uh, I know you're all thinking this, yes, I was a virgin when I wrote this poem. And I was so proud of it that I not only put it on my blog, I also made a zine with this poem in it and gave it to like, I gave it to like 50 to 100 of my friends. And it's, it's probable that quite a few of these are still out there in the world. And I am so ashamed of it. And like, it's still there on the internet. My first blog is still there. And it's, it's, it's deep in the internet. But if you search like me hard enough, you'll definitely find it and poems that are worse than this. <laughs> that like, I read and like, I cannot read that on stage. Uh, this is sort of the limit of like the worst thing I could possibly read. Um, but, and I don't really know why I haven't deleted it. I could probably delete it and it would be fine. But for some reason, it's really important to me that my past is still there. So I can see how much I've grown since that time and other people could possibly see how much I've grown. But the poetry isn't like the thing I'm most embarrassed about on the internet. Uh, from, from about 15 years old, the most important thing in my life was music and specifically the like New Zealand music scene. Uh, through the scene, I made, met my first friends, like my best friends ever and like pretty much the only friends I had at the time. And it was the first time I really felt part of this community. And without music, I don't think I would have ever got into writing or comedy or anything creative. So I really wanted to be like an integral part of the scene. But I had a problem because I'd been in a few bands and I used to organize gigs, but I wasn't very good at either of them. I was quite a bad musician and no one came to the gigs I organized. So I needed to find something to make me like important to the scene. So I thought, I know I can be a reviewer because that's what creative communities needs, more reviewers. <laughs> uh, so here's a review I wrote of Jin Wigmore's song, Black Sheep, for thecorner.co.nz in October 2011. Jin Wigmore probably has the most annoying voice in New Zealand. <laughs> as far as I can tell, the song is about how she isn't very good, but people should like her anyway. New Zealand's sex symbol for the ugly girls, singer for those who can't sing, role model for the average person. It's kind of actually a nice idea. Pity there are no other reasons to like her. And, sh and she has sold to you the same as every other pop singer. The use of the line, once you go black, you never go back, is an obvious attempt at some sort of humour to sell the song, but it's pretty cliche and the song could do without it. I was a dickhead. <laughs> But a problem with writing and the internet in general is it kind of flattens out time. So you can write, write something five years ago and people can read it today and still think of it as something that you'd think. And so recently that review was tweeted as an example of how bad music reviews are. And then somebody saw that and tagged me in a tweet about that. And like, I just was like, yeah, I was an asshole and 
I was wrong and I'm trying hard to not be that person anymore. Uh, and I don't, I don't really blog much anymore or really at all, but I tweet quite a lot. But the more followers I get, the less I feel about, like more hesitant I get about tweeting about incredibly personal things. But then if you look at my Twitter at 2 a.m. on like a day I'm feeling particularly sad, it gets like really bleak and personal. Um, but the most open and vulnerable I get is through stand-up comedy now. I started doing comedy in mid-2012, and I don't know if you've realized by now, but like I'm quite an anxious person, and in 2012 I was even more of an anxious person than I am now, and everyone keeps telling me that I'm so brave for doing comedy, but I'm going to let you in like a secret. I, I don't even really remember starting stand-up comedy, because... In 2011, I was super depressed and super anxious, and I was put on a drug called quetiapine. It's an antipsychotic, and in I was told, like, whenever you get anxious, take a pill. And I was always anxious, so I was just taking these all day, every day. And the main effect of this drug is it makes you really, really drowsy, and it turns you into a bit of a zombie, so you can do things, but you don't have that constant whirring in your head of all these ideas that makes you do things. You just kind of do them. So for the year I was on this like really high dose of quetiapine. I moved from Christchurch to Wellington, enrolled in a new university and started doing comedy. And I can remember like doing these things, but not the thought processes and like for why I did it. So near the end of 2012, I came off quetiapine and I kind of woke up from this like zombie state that I'd been in for a year and I was a comedian. <laughs> And everyone kept on calling me brave, so I'm like, yeah, I'll keep doing this. <laughs> and I don't even know if it's brave or not, and I'm not sure if I'm meant to be like proud of it or not, and I don't even know if it's really as honest as people think it is. But I know that there's a six-month window where I can be proud of something, and then I grow to be incredibly ashamed of it. <laughs> and I still keep doing things for some reason. And it's kind of because it's the only way that I know to make sure that I exist through like building this image of myself that I can like rely on. That's me. Thanks. Give it up for Simon Sweetman. That was a joke <laughs> about how your reviews are like Simon Sweetman's reviews. <laughs> Although, all right. So, can I please get you all to put your hands together for Kate Robertson? Okay, kia ora. Good evening. My name is Kate Robertson. Uh, I'm here, as you might have been able to pick up, because Alice Bryan told me to. I live with her, and I had no choice. So, thank you all for coming. This is a one-off for the rest of my life. Uh, so, a little bit about me, just so we can kind of build this healthy trust between us. This is the closest thing I've had to a long-term relationship since high school. So I think, I don't know, I hear trust is important. Uh, yeah, so whatever. Anyway, me, born and raised in rural North Canterbury. Uh, shout out to some people here who are from Rangiora. Um, <laughs> I hated it. I got out as soon as I could and moved to Wellington. Did a BA in something, doesn't matter. Still at uni because I didn't want to get a job. Uh, I now work at Salient because I obviously love uni so much that I want to work there too. Um, it's actually print day today, so make sure you get our next issue on stands on Monday. Sick plug in there. Um, and I'm also, ironically, a music critic. So someone decided they'd pay me for that. 
I just made it up as I go and kind of Googled how to do that. Um, and it's still hanging around, so I'll roll with that. Uh, I'm not a comedian, nor am I an actor, so I'm going to think of this kind of like my audition to do a TED Talk one day. It's not going to be... <laughs> It's not going to be that funny, but maybe I can kind of channel this not sexist, Gandhi-type millennial thought leader thing, and I don't know, I heard Instagram pays well, and I'd really like a Fit Tea endorsement, so hashtag that. Um, Anyway, why am I here? Pride and humiliation, uh, something I think we all probably have come across at some point in our lives. I think pride is problematic. I'm going to say it. Uh in so many ways. I think we can all agree that New Zealanders have a pretty fucked up relationship with pride. Like, we love Anzac Day. Fuck, we go ham on Anzac Day, which is great. But what else are we proud of? The All Blacks, Lydia Ko, Stephen Adams, Valerie Adams. And already, you're kind of going, mm, yeah, something's not quite right there. So... Already that picture, a little bit off. Further that by the fact that we are really shit at expressing our emotions and have this kind of tall poppy thing going on. Um, You know, we downplay our successes and fail to adequately kind of express when something good happens or say, you know, hey man, you did a good job. We'll say good job for like getting really drunk and vomiting on Courtney Place and getting on Police 10-7. You know, and it's super backwards. But I am not innocent. I too am definitely guilty of this. I don't even really know how to pride. A lot of the times I've tried and it's just ended up really bad and awkward and humiliating. So I am probably what my fictional psychologist would say an emotion suppressor. You know, like a cute Kate Hudson character in a rom-com who's got trust issues. Or maybe like a staunch-ass Kiwi bloke with a masculinity complex. So pride makes me do dumb shit. Uh, it makes me overcommit myself because I'm scared of saying no and looking like I can't do everything. It makes me refuse help from people, which is also really dumb because help is great. And it even makes me give back free money to my parents when they are trying to help me out in times of extreme student poverty. Who does that? Like free money. Your parents are like, hey, just put 20 bucks in your bank account. Go buy something that's not noodles. And I'm like, no, you can have that back. I'm going to keep eating my noodles and paying way too much for rent. Um, (laughs) Anyway, if we bring humiliation into the equation, the looming other half of this evening's theme, the scope of what could go wrong for someone emotionally challenged like myself goes into riot mode. It's like a fucking Trump rally in your brain. (laughs) If we mash them together, I think we could all agree that common beliefs would place pride first, with humiliation being the thing that comes after when you fuck up. Like, we can all agree on that? Cool? Yep. Okay, well, I have a different theory. I want to challenge this. Hold on to your seats and buckle up, because I'm going to get a little bit controversial here. But I don't think this is the case at all. I think humiliation breeds pride. And you all gasp, oh my God, what's she said? Thank you. I'm not talking about the kind of humiliation when you trip up and you're like, yeah, I'm just doing parkour, practicing. (laughs) I (coughs) totally don't do that. Um, I'm talking about the kind of humiliation that absolutely drags you. The kind of humiliation that when it happens to you, you contemplate everything from quitting your job right through to joining a witness protection program. So I say you've got two options. The first, you let it beat you. 
You let it define everything you do from that moment forward because you can't possibly think of how to come back from it. Until eventually, months later, the fog starts to lift and you can get on with your life. Conversely, you can take the second option, which is, this will be in a literary journal one day, so you might want to just like get a notepad out and quote me. Um, you can choose pride. <laughs> you pick yourself up knowing that the worst has, worst has passed and tell everyone you don't care. You're fine. You're bigger than the situation. It still burns. When does humiliation not burn? But fr from it, a healthier, more humble pride can manifest, free from ego and expectations. Now, it's at this point that I will forgive you for thinking that I'm just talking smack. Just spinning some yarns for fun because Alice was like, hey, Kate, do a water cooler. Well, what right do I have to speak such nonsense? If four years of university has taught me one thing, it's that your thesis statement always needs to be supported. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to do. I, could, I have so many stories that I could tell tonight about times I've humiliated myself and then been like, yeah, actually, I'm awesome. But I've just picked two. So I will present to you case study one. The time I moved back to Christchurch. This one was bad. So in a nutshell, I hated my first year of university. Bit of context for this one, I have been an overachiever my entire life and I'm a type A perfectionist, which is both very unhealthy things. Um, so I came to uni and was like, I'm going to take over the world. I'm out of Rangura. I'm going to knock this out of the park. Um, that didn't happen. I got really homesick and my brain just didn't like it one bit. Sure, some great stuff happened, stuff happened that year, but everything was tinged by this unrelenting longing for home, for my dog, my mum, my friends, and even my dumb brother who doesn't talk to me anymore because he is, like, way too cool and, like, skateboards and stuff, so whatever. Um, I had all the ambition in the world. Wellington had been my ticket out of small-town New Zealand, and I'd failed. I caved. I moved back home. I was humiliated. I wallowed for a very long time. But eventually I realised that my wallowing was serving no one. I needed to make the most of the shitty situation and get on with my life. Sure enough, one year later, almost to the day, I hauled ass back to Wellington, not as a failure, but as a success. I'd done it on my terms when I was ready, and I was fucking proud of that. It wasn't the kind of pride you feel when you win an award at school and all your parents are there and you're like, yes, thank you. Nor was it the kind of pride when there's a hottie on the dance floor and you're like, mm, the feelings are mutual. <laughs> it was the kind of pride that I didn't shout from the rooftops, but one that I will hold close to my heart probably forever. Now, I had another couple of case studies to chuck in here, but I timed it and we would have been here till tomorrow. So I'm going to bring the mood up again with a little bit of a funnier one <laughs> that... I don't know why I'm telling this story, but... Uh, Anyway, um, it'll prove my thesis beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, hopefully get me an A plus that I've still never had in my undergraduate degree. Totally not bitter or anything. Um, so here goes. Case study two. The school production audition. <laughs> Correction. It was a musical. <laughs> oh, God. So in year nine... Uh, I drifted through this phase that I think a lot of reasonably outgoing 13-year-olds go through, which is where you want to be an actress. Uh, all I wanted in the world was to be Miley Cyrus or Demi Lovato and like have my very own Jonas brother. Um, so I decided to audition for the musical. It was for a largely non-singing role. It was just a little bit of talking, whatever. 
Um, but you still had to sing for the audition. So I spent ages preparing for this. Like an unhealthy amount of time for someone who's shit at singing that I think I convinced myself I was very good. Um, so I rock up to this audition, spindly little year nine Kate, uh, and I walk into the drama room to find not only the drama teacher and some other pleb who's like, meh, a bit of a blur now, but the hottest year 13 in the whole school <laughs> sitting there. And I'm just like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, so the first moment of embarrassment comes when we have to read lines with this hot person. Like, I have no drama experience, like I don't know why I thought this would be a good idea. Um, so my cheeks are so red, there's like blood vessels bursting left, right and centre. Um, but it got worse. Went from zero to 100 like real quick, <laughs> real quick. <laughs> um, so I'm standing there, all this room in front of me, and they feel like they're so far away. Like, like it's just the uh, other side of the room. And they're like, okay, Kate, take it away. <laughs> I'm standing there, I'm like, oh, why you look so sad, <laughs> like just like that, um, and I sung one of the most famous songs and probably most difficult songs to sing in the entire world in front of my biggest crush in the whole entire school. Um, there might have, it was definitely like a verse and there might have been a chorus too, I don't quite remember, I think I've like blanked it out because it was very traumatic, um, but what I do remember is leaving and just having this total out of body experience, like what have I done? <laughs> you know when your legs are moving but you can't like feel them and it's just like, whoa, feel really strange, um, it was that, you know, I was like, Kate Robertson, why? A million thoughts were going through my head. What if he tells his friends? Why did you do that? Obviously, you're not going to get the part now. You should have just told them you had laryngitis. They do that all the time on American Idol. <laughs> but that night, I went home and I reflected on it. Yes, it was pretty mortifying, but I didn't die. It wasn't a liver transplant. I survived. And you know what? I think it makes like a pretty reasonable story eight years on. Um... You know, because mostly because it's one that most people wouldn't have to tell. I'm so proud of Year 9 Kate, and whenever I'm worried about a situation I am putting myself in where I'm going to be judged, I just think if Year 9 Kate can survive that and somehow come out empowered, then current Kate can do whatever's on the horizon. So yeah, both those situations sucked in their own way, and you're probably going to know what I'm about to say and think it's going to be super cliché, but by choosing not to dwell on the humiliation, I was able to turn all that negative shit into this kind of like Beyonce-esque bad bitch power and become even more empowered than I was before. And if I keep humiliating myself at this rate, which is very likely, um, my ego will be too big. And at that point, I would ask you to just kind of like pull me back down, um, bring me back to reality. So what's more is that I'm proud. I'm proud that I was able to listen to my body and do what was right, moving back to Wellington when the timing was better. And I'm proud that I was able to pick myself up after a tone-deaf rendition of I'll Stand By You <laughs> instead of wallowing in the fear of judgment and went on to find my niche in other places, more specifically the debating team, <laughs> which I've recently found out is even less cool than Drama Club. <laughs> so... <laughs> I lived a lie right from year 9 to 13 thinking I was like, yeah, I'm captain of the debating team. Like, that's real cool. Apparently not so cool. Um, but I'm proud of how I dealt with each and every one of those, with each of those situations and every embarrassing one since. Life went on and my relationship with that weird emotion became a whole lot healthier. If you're willing to let it, I think humiliation can pave the way for a much cooler kind of pride. One that's humble and free from ego. 
It breeds a kind of pride that can only come from rock bottom. But what a feeling when you realise it's only up from there. Thank you. Can everyone please put their hands together for Eli Joseph? All right, so like Alice said, I'm show folk. Um, normally I hang out doing like the burlesque, cabaret, variety thing. Um, for those of you who've been paying too much attention, I've like adjusted myself several times during the. I'm just going to do it again because. Sometimes you face this problem where you run out of ordinary underwear because laundry day is too far away and you're wearing show pants underneath and a stray sequin is driving into your right nut. <laughs> That's called oversharing. I think there's like one person in the room who might understand the struggle. Hi, James. <laughs> and none of that was the story. Um, That's just me talking without thinking. The story, right. I lost my virginity in a nefarious plot. Good opener, right? See, his girlfriend and I had mutual friends. These friends decided that he was like a filthy philandering bastard and that it would be better for her if they broke up. So these friends set out to break them up and I was the instrument of that destruction. This. This teaches us two things. One, 18-year-old virginal Eli has no concept of sexual ethics. Two, 18-year-olds in general have no concept of ethics and are probably terrible friends. <laughs> so the combined libidos of two 18-year-old boys won out over common sense. Fucking shock, right? And unfortunately, she found out and their relationship was ruined. His name was Ross. His name is still Ross. Ross isn't dead. <laughs> when I tell the story, it's a weekend filled with sodomy and pizza, in that order specifically, uh, <laughs> video games and sodomy, uh, Resident Evil movies and sodomy. It was a great weekend to be an 18-year-old boy. <laughs> when she tells the story, it's about a red-headed son of a bitch who destroyed her relationship. And I think that's the important difference between pride and humiliation. Context and perspective. Who's telling the story to who and why? And I think something similar is going on with selfies. The 21st century art form, bear with me. See, I'm assuming everyone here has put photos of themselves on the internet, Alice. Her Snapchats, like, I was like, oh, I've got a Snapchat. It's... Like, fucking nine photos of Ellis in a car going to Auckland. <laughs> because I care. I love it, really. I do. I do. Really <laughs> anyway, so selfies, right? Each of these is us telling a story about ourselves we want other people to know. Like, we're having a great hair day, or we just got new shoes, or we've got this necklace that makes our boobs secretly look great, or like... We're having a great time with our friends or on an exotic holiday to Auckland with a telescope. Mm. These are the stories we want to tell. A quick flick through my phone will show you a whole bunch of selfies with me backstage at the Fringe Bar with a whole bunch of other people wearing too much face paint. I don't put these photos on the internet because I've got terrible fucking selfie game. The selfies we don't share, the ones we don't take, like you don't see selfies of people who've just thrown up on themselves or at the supermarket. 
or like smoking meth because these aren't the stories we want to tell. And sometimes we want to tell a specific person a specific sexy story. But the problem is when those photos go onto the internet, we lose the ability to control how that story is told. I mean, like, I disagree with a lot of Kim Kardashian's life choices. Hopefully you all do too. But if she wakes up one day and she says, you know what, I'm looking fantastic. Check out my marvellous breasts. I want to send a photo to my friend slash lover slash Kanye slash whoever I fucking want. But because I'm a fan of juxtaposition, I'm going to do this. <laughs> Click. Duck face. Send. Good for you, Kim. But then, like, accidentally oops the internet. And you cue the haters and the body shamers and the trolls and the dude bros who for some reason just cannot handle it. If a woman shares an image of her body because she's feeling foxy fly or really any other reason than their intended consumption and they just lose their little minds. Like, fuck that. Just actually. Like, to all the ladies and to all the haters, if she wants to put her body on the internet because she feels proud of herself, that's not your cue to humiliate her. It actually has nothing to do with you. In fact, almost all of these photos are intended for a specific audience and not the wider internet. And why aren't we shaming the assholes who, oh, I don't know, share nude photos of women without their subject's consent? Wasn't planning on that getting an applause, but okay, I'll take it, thank you. Um, I was going somewhere with that and just stopped looking at the page altogether. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, oh, okay, so I don't share photos of my penis on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry, men of Grinder, But I prefer to... <laughs> no guys laughing at that joke. I would prefer to maintain control over how that story is told. It's a long, fascinating story with a surprise twist at the end, if you know what I mean. <laughs> The closest I have come to a leaked nude is at a gig I was performing in last year. Um, I wound up, for reasons, in nothing but a white G-string and a smile because I've made some really good career choices, obviously. <laughs> I wake up to a text message the next day telling me to go check Facebook. So I do. And the photographer, bless her little cotton socks, has uploaded a whole bunch of images. There is me, hands in the air, hips forward. I'm probably saying something because I've got one of those looks like they're having a stroke expressions. And the stage light just outlines every curve in specific glorious detail. And she was thankful enough, you know, grateful, good on you, tagged me in the photo so all of my friends could see it. And my mother. <laughs> Oh my, son. Not so much as an emoticon. <laughs> Thankfully, I could contact the photographer and have that image taken down, dealt with within 24 hours. Sweet, not everyone is that lucky. And I stopped looking at the page again. Oh yeah, it totally didn't stop my friends from like impersonating my mad sexy photo posing skills for a week solid. <sighs> Thanks, friends. Weirdly enough, in my research into nude internet selfies, I noticed a pattern. All of these guys who so quickly jump on social media to denounce women for having the, the pride, well, lack of pride, lack of modesty, lack of self-respect to show your tits on the internet, they're also the ones who are like, snap, snap, snap. Gross. The weird thing about all this is, all these women you're deriding actually have some sense of their best angles. There's like two flattering angles for a dick pic, and I'm sorry, gents, you haven't found them. 
Who knew that four inches could be oversharing? <laughs> See, I once had a comedian tell me whenever he'd screwed up, what he wanted most in the world was a microphone. Because there's almost nothing you can't talk your way out of if you've got a microphone in your hand or in front of you. See, if you screw up just an everyday conversation, you're a screw up. But if you screw up in front of a microphone, people assume it's on purpose. I've got you all fooled. <laughs> well, some of you. Hopefully at least one of you. I fooled Alice, she thinks I know what I'm doing. That's why she gave me a spot in a silly dumb show. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alice, thank you so much. <laughs> Never getting hired again. But yeah, you screw up in front of a microphone, the audience will laugh with you, even if you're not laughing. Because they'll assume it's intentional. And I thought, being a performer, that would like somehow remove my sense of shame. Like I trained myself out of it, like bedwetting or calling out my own name during sex. <laughs> You'd think dancing about on stage, taking my clothes off would give me some kind of shame immunity. No. No, it's a double bluff. Actually, I take my clothes off so you think I'm confident. I tell you stories about how I've made some terrible sexual ethical mistakes as an 18-year-old, so you think it's some kind of funny anecdote and not something I'm deeply ashamed of. The emotional double bluff. Wait, embarrassment double bluff. It's a great party trick. Like, you tell your most embarrassing stories and people think you're funny and humble and like a cool guy. And It's actually really effective in front of a room full of strangers. And these guys have actually done quite well with it tonight, don't you think? And I bet you Jen's going to do great. No pressure. Be better than the rest of us. <laughs> it totally doesn't work when you tell these stories to the people who were there. See, somehow, Ross and I stayed friends. And then somehow, a couple of years later, we wound up dating. And I knew, I knew we couldn't keep dating if he didn't know the true story about how we'd met. So, in my bed, in the dark, without a spotlight or a microphone to hide behind, I told him a true story. And I felt shame. And he cried. And the shame was like a knife and it twists in my gut. And sometimes, because I'm not a great person all the time, I will use the shame double bluff when I shouldn't with someone else's story. And usually these stories get a laugh because I'm a funny guy. Um, but then I realize that actually it's not that funny because I'm using somebody else's embarrassing story to shame them for my own social standing. And that's not funny or witty, it's cruel. So, Jatana, Rama, Katie, Miranda, the several friends I have done this to, if you're listening to this podcast, sorry. Um, it was a shit thing of me to do, but I'm working on my empathy and general, like, sensible human responses. And apparently I'm making progress because my flatmate told me last night that I can now, like, accurately imitate three sincere human emotional responses. Progress. <laughs> oh. Um, so, yeah, I thought I'd write a really funny story when Alice offered me a spot in her show. Whoops. Instead, <laughs> I learned something new. Y yay me? Personal growth. Catharsis. That's what you're paying for. Shame is feeling like you've fallen short of what other people expect of you. This is something I've learned. Like you've done wrong because you haven't done the right kind of right. But what's done is done and feeling bad about it will only help you so much. So pff, fuck it. I say find the funny in your fuck ups. 
it makes it way easier to deal with yourself and so much easier to talk to strangers if you've got a good true story or two. Thanks. Give it up for Eli. That's great. Yeah, that's very, very good. Yeah. All right. Can I please get you all to put your hands together for Jen O'Sullivan? I got it. We're good. We're good, everybody. Um, there are many things that I have done that I am embarrassed about. Um, there's the time I told my dance friend the same joke three times. Um, there's the time I finished writing a speech for a show during the show. <laughs> see me. Uh, and there's the fact that I lost my virginity in Upper Hutt in the year 2000 after a tadpole and fur patrol concert. <laughs> yeah. But this is the thought, this is the memory I have uh, that starts my train of water cooler thought. When I was six years old, there was a boy in my class whose name was Sam. And Sam had cerebral palsy. I, being a six-year-old, I knew one word for the way he was, and that word was handicap. Uh, and one day, um, to make friends with the girl next to me as we sat in line for Danish rounders, um, I said to the girl next to me, uh, Sam's handicapped, day," eh? And she went, what? And I said, Sam, he's a handicap. Um, and she looked at me like I was Satan uh, and immediately told the teacher what I had said. And soon after this, Sam was sent on a meaningless errand to another classroom just to keep him busy for a while while the teacher sat the entire classroom on the ground, the mat, sorry, you know, the mat, um, to tell us that Sam had cerebral palsy, that handicap was not a nice thing to call someone or to, to say about someone, um, and how we were supposed, we were support, we, you know, how were we supposed, how we were supposed to support him in class. Um, I was just mortified because all I understood was that I had done a thing that meant the entire class got in trouble. Um, and I was just devastated by how bad I felt about it all. Um, I spent like the next two years of my life, like tiny little life, uh, every so often just waking up at night and, and dwelling on how terrible a human I was um, and how just, just how awful I felt. Today I had lunch with my mum. Slight, slight, that was a terrible segue. But today I had lunch with my mum. And uh, during our conversation, she asked me why I was such a feminist, which if you've ever met me, yeah, I am. Um, and I don't remember the exact starting point for wearing that label, but I do know that it was probably the last five or six years that I've really sort of gone, yes, that's what I do. Which means that there was like 25 years of my life where I said some problematic shit. Um... There was the time that I uh, said to a gay man, I can't imagine having to act gay. That's just so unnatural. Um, there was a time I, I said I was working at Trade Men looking at sexy lingerie because sometimes that's what you have to do. And I commented to a friend of mine in the office, I can't believe this underwear comes in a size 26. And she was a size 26. Um, uh, there was the time that I, when I'm doing, I started out doing stand-up, I told a joke about pushing someone down the stairs to induce an abortion. Um, and uh, sometimes I use the word woke, unironically. Um, 
I'm just really lucky that most of the things that I have done and said in that context happened before the internet was there to capture it all and hold it up for other people to see. Uh, because so much of what we do these days is that's what happens to it. You tweet something, you Facebook something, you tell somebody something in passing, and they post it online, they take a photo, they tweet it, and suddenly everyone's aware of it and everyone can tell you what a fuck up you are. And thankfully, nobody saw all of those other horrible things I did. Um, there's this whole thing now where people think that there's like this really toxic call-out culture that um, calling people out on their bullshit is is negative because it leads to pylons and, oh, it's terrible and, you know, can't we just be polite to each other and rah, rah, rah. And I actually really disagree with that. Like, despite what I said, I, I really disagree with it. And one of the reasons is that I had this theory that is going to get a bit rambling. I have this theory that offensiveness comes in in two forms. There's two ways that offensiveness happens. You know, these things that we say. There's offensiveness that uh, that re reoffends. There's offensive. There's offensiveness that reinforces the status quo. You know, like sexism and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia. There's things that we say and we do where we we where we say stupid things to our fat coworker and. Uh, and then like, years later you think, what a fucking stupid thing to say. Um, and yeah, it all reinforces the current power structure and everything. And then there's the other way of offending people where you actually are doing things that are challenging the status quo and the people with power are telling you, no, don't do that. Um, you know, so like you uh, take your shirt off in public as a woman or you breastfeed and people see your boob and they go, that's disgusting, you're a disgusting person and really you're just mothering a fucking child. Um, or, you know, you're bigger than people like, or you are gay, or you are a trans person, and people find you offensive just for living your life in a way that's not the way. Um, there's a myth that women speak too much, and maybe tonight we're reinforcing it. No, we're not. Um, uh, there's a myth that women speak too much, and it's this idea that, like, uh, when you have a group of, of, you know, an even group of men and women, if we're going to get binary for a second, that... Um, when women speak 30% of the time, it's perceived by everybody as being equal. And when we speak 50% of the time, it's perceived as being unbalanced, that women are getting too much time. And one of the things that drives that is that women's speech isn't compared to men's speech, it's compared to silence. So it's the idea that we're speaking more than nothing. So when you get angry with call-out culture, what I hear is... You are speaking, not you are speaking too much. It's you're speaking at all. And people get angry that they're being called out at all. Um, oh, uh, I wrote this other thing down. One time, I, sorry, one time I went to a fancy dress party that had an exploration theme. And I turned up wearing like a black dress and headscarf and burqa sort of thing. And my boyfriend was wearing like the male Dubai outfit and whenever anybody asked us about our costumes we went exploration I thought you said exploitation because we thought we were really fucking clever so that happened and I'm telling you and it's being recorded um <laughs> that's that's something that happened and I just I need to say that I, I'm fucking embarrassed about it anyway back to my theories um I like to boil them down to binaries um my theory is that the mindset that drives people to do and say these offensive things, both, you know, both directions of offensive things, is one of ignorance. And that the ignorance that drives it, it can take two forms. On the one side, there's literal ignorance. Like six-year-old Jen 
calling someone a handicap because that's what she thought the word was. Like, that's all I knew. No one had exposed me to any other ideas. Um, it's, it's Jen putting on a, a burqa and going, oh, this is a hilarious outfit. Women are so exploited and not really thinking that through. And then having, you know, learning more about it and finding out more. And I don't think that the original ignorance is something that anyone has to be ashamed or embarrassed about. I think it's something that you you learn and you go, oh shit, I didn't know, but now I know and I've grown and I'm moving forward. But there's another kind of ignorance and it comes from living in this world that we live in that is literally overflowing with information. It's, it's driven by the smartphone and the internet. Anyone can find out anything at any time just by Googling with something that we carry around in our pocket. You can win arguments all of the time. You never have to go, well, I guess we'll just agree to disagree because you can check. Um, and we, and anyone can ask an expert anything they like just by going on Twitter. So many of them are just on Twitter. And anyone can pretend to be an expert with a fancy headshot and a slick website. And because we're surrounded by that information, we think we have enough of it to have opinions on anything we like. So we don't think about how much work goes into that hot take we read that on you know, The Guardian that told us all about that particular issue. That person researched so much to distill it into that amount of work. And we just read it and go, great, I'm an expert. I know what's going on. I don't have to be questioned on this. I know everything. Um, and when we become an expert in that way, or like we, or even when we're an expert in another field, as an example I'm going to talk about in a second, um, we, we mistake that confidence for confidence in all areas. So when we fuck up, we mistake, we make another mistake, but we, we go, well, I can't make a mistake because I'm really smart. And that hubris and that pride and that stubbornness, um, we mistake it for like just confidence in our own abilities. We get confused and we just become dicks. Um, there's, there's two people that in my head at the moment who are doing this. And one of them is Richard Dawkins, who, who I, am, I am a little bit reluctant to talk about in this way, given that this is going to go on the internet and his fucking followers are terrible. But um, <laughs> Richard Dawkins is an expert in a particular field. He is a critical thinker, he is a skeptic, he is a smart person. But he is a fucking misogynist and he is an Islamophobe. And he does not have any concept that the things that he does and says on Twitter have repercussions and that he is not an expert in those areas. The other person who's done it recently that's been a dick that I think you probably know about is Richie Hardcore, who um, recently uh, was called out by a woman for saying something shitty about Kim Kardashian's selfie, saying that it was an unhealthy validation, which is hilarious given that he runs a campaign which is my body, my terms, unless I don't like it. Um, uh, but these are these people who, and when they've been told that they made a mistake and when they did it wrong, rather than going, wow, okay, and stopping and listening and accepting that they have the ignorance. Their pride is so big and so massive that they're not listening and that's harmful and it's painful and it hurts. Um, as a side note, uh, both me and a male friend tweeted at Richard Dawkins at a thing he did recently and my male friend, who's there, um, <laughs> you're verified, um, <laughs> I'm not lying, he tweeted at Richard Dawkins saying, hey dick, don't be a dick. I'm paraphrasing. Um, <laughs> And got no response, got no response. I did the same. I had like a dozen douche bro accounts come and attack me on Twitter. Nothing for him, just me. Interesting point. Just saying dick faces. Um, but 
what, what I would love for us to find is that balance between that utter humiliation of six-year-old Jen who dwelled on things for years after it happened and that, sh- that shameless pride of overconfidence where you just hurt people because you're not listening. Um, for, for, for six-year-old Jen, it ended, it finally ended when I sort of, I had this night where finally I couldn't deal with not sleeping anymore and I went downstairs and talked to my mum and I said, mum, I did this thing, I said these words, I'm a terrible person and she hugged me and she held me on her knee and she told me that it was a mistake and that I just, I just hadn't known but now I knew and I could move forward, you know, I could, I could gr- learn from it and grow, like, uh, like both of you I think said, yeah, uh, you know, you move forward and you grow and you learn from it. And I just, I really wish that more people would go and ask their mum for guidance and not be really prideful dickheads.